Good morning, everyone. Well, our text today is the second Samuel chapter one. So if you will turn to page six of your bulletin, uh, you can follow with your eyes as I read this text. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from, David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened, David asked. Tell me, he said. Tell me. He said, uh, the man fled from uh, the battle. The, oof. the men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, What can I do? He asked me, Who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, Stand over me and kill me. I am in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood over him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord in the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite, he answered. And David asked him, Why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, Go, strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan and ordered that the men of Judah be taught the lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. O mountains of Geboa, may you have neither dew nor rain nor fields that yield offerings of grain. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. 
how the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask you to take this uh, text, which seems so foreign to our lives today, and show us in it truths that will help us live our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I uh, realized that my assignment was this particular text and that this text fell on Thanksgiving weekend, I said, oh, oh, great. I get to talk about a funeral on Thanksgiving weekend. Doesn't that seem like an odd fit? Uh, but the more I thought about it, it actually is a great fit. Um, so let me start by telling you that three weeks ago, uh, I was preaching at Mid-City. And to prepare for that, I went to print out my sermon at my home. And I put my, connected my computer to the printer, and I had my flash drive on which the sermon was contained, and it wouldn't print out. I looked at it again, made sure I had the right printer setting. It wouldn't print out, it wouldn't print out, it wouldn't print out. And, and I looked at my watch. It's too late to come downtown to print it out at my chamber's computer. So I had the brilliant idea of taking my laptop to Mid-City, putting it on a podium that looked just like this, and setting it up, making sure that it balanced perfectly, that it was secure. And I sat down while Stephen Phelan introduced and said some announcements, and then imperceptibly the footing or the, the base moved downward, imperceptibly. And then the next thing I heard was this crash, and there was my computer on the ground. The screen was shot. You couldn't turn it back on, and my flash drive was utterly mangled. So uh, this past week, and I, I took my flash drive to an expert, and they said, Dead, gone, there's no technology can bring this back. Five years of work was on that flash drive. Some of it, about 30% of it, I had backed up. But the other, it's all gone. Five years. And so then this past week, uh, I'm at home. I go into my wife's study, and I say, I'm going to let me see, see if my blankety blank printer will work this time and I hooked it in to the port and I looked over and I realized that I had hooked it into the wrong port and all I had to do it was the port right next to it and when I hooked it in of course before it printed out I went to my control panel to see what was on the printer's memory there was my previous sermon from Mid-City, five of them ready to be printed out because of me hitting print, print, trying to get it working. And so five years of work destroyed because I was connecting to the wrong source. And that's what this lesson is about that we're reading. We have two men, one who connected to the wrong source, and that was Saul, and David, who connected to the right source. So uh, if you look in your bulletin, I have an outline on page 7. 
And uh, the first point I want to make here is that God's justice leads to death. Now, I know that your initial reaction is going to be, oh, my goodness, especially if you're new to Christianity or you're just exploring the Christianity, you might think that this is going to be one of those hell and brimstone messages and why did you come this Sunday of all Sundays? And uh, the whole question of accountability to God may be a whole new issue to you. Don't tune out. Just kind of go with me and work your way through the end of this, uh, with me to the end of the sermon because it is ultimately a great Thanksgiving story that we have here. So let me tell you that Ziklag, one of the interesting things about Ziklag, where Paul, uh, where, where David had been hiding and where this man came, is that Ziklag was originally part of the land that belonged to the tribe of Simeon. But at, but at the time that Saul was king, the Philistines had conquered that area of Israel. And so Ziklag, instead of being an Israelite town, had become a Philistine town. David was in Ziklag, which means that he had been still hiding out in Philistine territory. Even though it was technically within the borders of Israel that God had given uh, to the land. Now, we also know from an earlier passage that what this Amalekite was telling David was not true. We know from 1 Samuel chapter 31, verses 3 to 6, exactly how Jonathan and Saul died. They did not die at the hand of this Amalekite, and they did die in battle. The Amalekite actually had nothing to do with Saul's death. His was a fabricated story. Uh, I'm not going to read the real story to you because you can just turn to 1 Samuel 31, verses 3 through 6, uh, and basically it says that Saul... Uh, fell on his own sword. I mean, uh, uh, Saul took his own sword and fell on it, and then his armor bearer did likewise uh, because he loved uh, Saul so much. Uh, But it is interesting that the man only identifies himself as an Amalekite, not by his name, especially since the Amalekites are enemies of Israel. Uh, Remember, it is the Amalekites that God had commissioned Saul to killed because of their centuries of disobedience to God, their engagement in child sacrifice, um, and similar atrocities. But there are perhaps two reasons why the Amalekite identified himself this way. First is that David and his men have been living in Ziklag, which is Philistine territory, for several years. And the man identified David with Philistia more than he did with Israel. And perhaps he is operating under the theory, we have the same enemy, Israel, therefore we are friends. Uh, Indeed, one of the princes of Philistine named uh, Ashish had wanted David and his men to go into this great battle uh, with the rest of the Philistine princes against Saul and Jonathan. And and it said about Ashish's view of David this, in 1 Samuel 27, Asius trusted David and said to himself, he has become so odious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant forever. And that could have been in this Amalekite's mind. David has, was no longer to be identified with the Israelites, but, uh, but with the Philistines. 
and it, it's not, it wouldn't surprise me as if David and his men probably dressed like and looked like Philistines at this time. Okay? Uh, second factor, David and his men have been successfully masquerading as allies of Philistia and enemies of Israel for quite a while now. The, the princes of Philistine thought that David was taking forays into Israel to attack the Israelite camps, uh, which is not what David was in fact doing. So when we look at the story, we, we see that God's, God's judgment is deep. It extends to every sin, and it is broad. It extends to every uh, person. No sin is missed, and no sinner is missed. David understood this great truth. Saul did not. Saul seemed to have the feeling that he could disobey God's will and escape God's justice by killing David, God's new successor king. David understood, however, that it was God's will that he be king, and his knowledge of God's justice kept him from killing Saul on the two previous occasions that he had had to kill Saul, once in the cave and once when he and... um, a colleague sneaked into uh, the uh, into Saul's camp. Now, had Saul succeeded in killing David, he would have exulted. He would have been glad because either he thought he could avoid God's justice and judgment, or he failed to think about them. One of the, he thought he could avoid it, or he simply pushed it out of his mind, not wanting to deal with that thought. In contrast, now. David understood what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, let me stop. You may not be a a Christian here. You may be here exploring this, and you may go to other places and explore different, different churches or different religions. Or you have a, a, a brand new, you're a brand new Christian and you really haven't thought about this whole issue of God's justice and a judgment on a personal level. What it means for you, what it means for you as an individual. And the Bible teaches that every man and woman is accountable to God for how he lives. Now, let me, let me underscore that. It's not every Christian is accountable to God. It's not every member of some other religion is accountable to God. It's every single human being is accountable to God for how he lives. And perhaps you have asked yourself or you've asked others this question. If God is holy and just, how could he let evil persist in the world? Because that's an argument against becoming a, a Christian or believing that there is a just God in the world. And the key to this question, the key to that question is to recognize that it is the wrong question. See, if the question is, how can a holy God let evil exist? If that is the question, it is the wrong question. The right question is, if God is holy and just, why did he let me get up this morning? Why didn't he strike me dead? I had some friends who invited me to lunch, and they said, we just want to talk about the Bible. I said, great. He said, we want to ask you questions. I said, great. Uh, I love this because none of them had really bought into it. So I asked them 
Okay, let me ask, start off by asking you guys a question. If you could create God, what would his characteristics be? And it was so surprising that they absolutely described the God of the Bible. We want him to be holy. We want him to be just. We want him to be not a respecter of persons. It didn't matter what color you were, any of that stuff. And I said, okay, now let's say that that is God. If that is the characteristic of God, how do you stand before him? Why do you think it's safe for you to be in in front of that God? And so here's the question that Saul had not answered in his life, but David had answered in his life. All his life, um, David, with fits and starts like you and I do, had wrestled with and come to some conclusion about that key question. And so after the second opportunity to kill Saul, David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? The issue of guiltless is irrelevant unless you know you're going to stand before a holy God and have to give an account. In other words, David was saying, I know I'm accountable to God for how I live. Therefore, I'm not going to kill Saul and I'm not going to let you kill Saul on my behalf. All his life, David dealt with Saul with a keen sense of accountability to God. And all Saul's life, he had dealt with David with an absence of that same recognition. As a result, David could genuinely and honestly grieve Saul's death because his own heart was unstained either by the desire to avenge himself against Saul or by remorse for having killed Saul. Now, let me step back for a minute. Um, It's unusual for me to go to a musical concert, although I love music. I love music. Because I hate it when the artists get up there and say, I love you. And then they charge $150 for the ticket. <laughs> that just fries me. Or when you see politicians at uh, the funeral of some great man and they laud him. And, and you know, uh, including the people who within, I remember when Senator Kennedy died, the issue was who was going to succeed him. And like there were four or five people just waiting. They were counting down the days when it would be respectful to now enter the race. And so it is possible to get cynical looking at this story and saying David was just like those politicians or like the musicians and performers today. But that's not what's happening. David's grief is genuine. And this text helps us understand why his grief is genuine. All right? So now, it may seem that talking about God's justice and judgment is typical, rule-oriented fundamentalism that has already turned you off. Why go there? You don't want to talk about that. Let me give you a different uh, perspective. Because when the warnings come in the Bible, they are always an expression of God's love. Warnings are always an expression of God's love. One of my areas of expertise when I was a trial lawyer was how manufacturers faced liability for the products they put into the marketplace for failing to warn consumers about the expected hazards from that use. 
for example, when you buy medicine today and you open it up, inside is something that's called a product insert. That product insert, if you read it, tells you all the possible bad things that could happen as a result of using this medication. The manufacturers don't want to put that in there. They put that in there to avoid liability. And because some genuinely do want you to know so that you can make an intelligent decision about whether or not you should take the medication. See, the warning is an expression of concern for the person who's going to take the medication to make sure that you don't have a condition for which this is inappropriate and the harm of the use can far exceed the benefit of the use. Uh, So uh, when a manufacturer has a good warning, even if there's a bad consequence, there's no liability. If the manufacturer doesn't have a warning or the warning is inadequate and there's a bad consequence, the manufacturer is liable. The quality of the warning is what protects the manufacturer from liability to the public. And here's a loving God continually warning us that if we don't obey, if we don't receive Jesus Christ, bad things happen. This is not the act of a wrathful, vengeful God. This is an act of God who deeply loves and cares for people who will have to stand before him one day and give an account for how they live. And you and I, even if we don't buy into Christianity, we want this. We demonstrate this in our own lives. We ask when somebody does some horrible thing, why cannot they be brought to justice? Why can't they be found? How do they get off on some technicality when we know they did it? In our gut, we are asking for justice that doesn't let the wrongdoer escape. Now, God has created that system in his kingdom, and that is why we will all stand before him. God knows that, and sometimes you and I don't know it or we don't appreciate it. So God, out of love, gives warning. I used to be a skiing fanatic. My wife can tell you to her lament. First one on the mountain, last one off. And the whole mountain was available except for those areas where they had cordoned off because there was avalanche danger or because there was a dry patch. And they marked those areas. Now, the whole mountain, you could free, you could ski, you could do anything you wanted on the entire mountain except for these limited protected areas which posed a harm. And that's what God is saying. All of life is here to enjoy. Just, I'm just telling you, don't go off this past this yellow tape because you're going to go off the mountain. Here's a dry spot. If you're zooming down that mountain and hit it, your skis will stop. But you will keep going. I know from experience <laughs> what I'm talking about. So God warns of his justice and judgment for the very reason that he loves us. He says, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Therefore, repent and live. Ezekiel 18, 32. I take no pleasure in anyone's death. Therefore, repent and live. So, I'm mindful of my time. This is a good thing for you. Now, 
let me close this section by underscoring three unsettling aspects about God's judgment. The first is that it occurs at all. The fact that God does judge is unsettling because you may have never thought about the idea uh, that you will be accountable to God and actually stand before him one day to give an account of how you've lived. That's an unsettling thought. Um, And we live in a time when we say, uh, don't be judgmental, Uh, we need to be liberal. That is all true in terms of our relationships with one another. It is not true in terms of God's relationship with us. The former is a cultural adaptation. The latter is the way God has organized his universe. The second unsettling aspect concerns what you and I cannot do. You and I cannot look at someone else's life and conclude that bad things have come to that person because God is judging them. You and I can't do that. We know that God is judging Saul in this context because it says so. But you and I cannot look at another person's life and come to that conclusion without grave error and creating worse problems for ourselves and for that person who's suffering. We know about Saul because God tells us that God is judging Saul. You and I should be very, very reluctant to do that on our own. We are more apt to be wrong than right. Well, the third unsettling aspect of God's judgment on Saul is that God gave Saul repeated, dramatic opportunities to repent over a 15-year period. And Saul never did. He sent Samuel. He put him in the hands of David twice. He had counselors. He knew what the word of God said. He, time and time again, over 15 years, all he had to do was say, God, I'm, so- I'm wrong. I've sinned. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Bam. How, much, how long did that take? 20 seconds. And his entire life would have been different. There is a terrible irony here in Saul's life because once Samuel anointed David king, Saul lived in fear, insecurity, and even madness. Why? He tried to avoid repentance and God's judgment. He tried to take hold of the very thing God had promised to take away from him. And he failed failed to take hold of the very thing God offered him, which is peace and salvation through God alone. All he had to do was repent. Saul feared death so much precisely because he lived his life apart from God. Stephen Cooper shared an email with me that had a wonderful principle in it that I want to share with you today. A life lived apart from God not only ends badly, It lived badly. Let me repeat that. A life lived apart from God not only ends badly, it lived badly. So for the 15 plus years that Saul hated David and pursued him, his life was a living hell. He had no peace. How are you living your life? How much is God in your life? Is God or the culture shaping your values, 
your perspective, the things you're hoping for? In what areas of your life are you right now trying to avoid God? Well, the second division is that God's mercy leads to, to gratitude. And here is a, a, just a marvelous part of the story to me. Ashish, the Philistine priest, prince, and there were seven, I think, but there were more than one Philistine princess. Ashish had become David's sponsor in Philistia. And he wanted David and his men to accompany the Philistine army into this very battle in which David and Goliath, I'm sorry, (laughs) David and his men, David and his men, I mean, Jonathan is soft. My goodness, hold it. I had to crank up that mind a little bit. This is the very battle in which Jonathan and Saul were killed. And the Philistine, Ashish wanted David and his army to go with them. But the other princes protested because they were worried about David. They still didn't completely trust his loyalty, although Ashish completely trusted him. So some said, you know, if we put him in the front, he's really an enemy of Philistine. He will hamper our advance and turn on us and kill us. If we put him at the rear, then when we're attacked by Saul, in the front, then David and his men will attack us and we'll be uh, caught between them. And we can't put them in the middle. So all they could do as a compromise was to leave David and his men there. They could not join the battle. Um, Now, and... um, David, had, David is in Philistia because he had a temporary lack of faith. He had a temporary lack of faith. And his temporary lack of faith had created for him a horrible dilemma from which God in his great mercy had delivered him in the form of the Philistines' princess' refusal to let David join the battle. David did not know that Jonathan and Saul would fall in this battle. He did not know about the conversation that Saul had had with Samuel, if you remember last week's sermon, when he was called up uh, from the grave through the witch of, by the witch of Endor. And Samuel told him, tomorrow this time you will be dead. David did not know this. Just think of the stain on David's reputation had he been in that battle. Think of how cold remorse would have gripped his heart for the rest of his life that he had even directly participated in the death of Saul and his very, very best friend, Jonathan. See, we are at times faithless. But God is always faithful. David is in Philistia because he is so tired of being pursued by Saul that he basically says to himself, um, 
I've been lucky so far, but my, I can't be lucky all the time. And so he leaves Israel and goes into Philistia. That's a lack of faith. He didn't realize at that moment of weakness, and I can understand it. This is not a criticism of David. I haven't been running for 15 years. You know, I haven't had somebody trying to kill me for 15 years. And so he leaves Israel and he goes into the heart of enemy territory because he believes it's safer there than to be in Israel, the chosen land that God had given his people. And now that he's there, he's in this terrible predicament. He cannot say, I don't want to go into battle because that will prove that he is loyal to Israel and not faithful and they'll just turn around and kill him. And if he says, I want to go into battle, let me go, and he goes... He's a traitor to Israel. He will never be the man to unify Israel. The people of Israel will always be suspicious of him, and he will always look at himself as a failure for what he had done. And God protects him, shows him great mercy. Now, it would have been right for God, understand, to say, okay, you, you didn't trust me. You went into Philistia, now you, it's your problem. If God had done that, God would have been right to do that. But in his great mercy, God persuaded the princes of Philistine, Philistia, not to let David go, despite the urgent advocacy of Ashish. So David stays back, and his life is unstained by the death of Saul and Jonathan. He can honestly say, I did not have a hand in it. And with good conscience, he could go before his people and say that, and go before and stand before God and do that. God had delivered David from a fate worse than death. Um, in reading uh, this story, you see the raw outpouring of emotion from David. His emotions are running at like 150%, which is often the case when God, when we see that God has spared us from some horrible. Uh, thing that we had not foreseen. I remember once, this is about two years ago, Dana and I were driving on 805 South to take her car to the dealership in National City for routine servicing. She did not know how to get there in this particular route, so she was going to follow me in, uh, she has a sports car, I have the state Volkswagen station wagon. I have the car that says, married. <laughs> she has the car that says, hot mama. So, so she's driving behind me in the little sports car of hers. And, and I said, follow close because it's a kind of a tricky way to get off 805 to go on this other road. And right in front of me was a, a, a huge truck tire and wheel. And I had just, I mean, just enough time to avoid it. A a car in front of me had just moved out immediately. And and when I saw it, I literally, and my, even that heavy Volvo rocked to the right. Unbeknownst to me, Dana had moved into the left lane, not because she had sensed any danger, but she was kind of coming up, I think, to kind of wave at me and say hi, because once she started going, she knew how to get there. 
And so I think her intention was to beat me there. But listen, I got angry that she wasn't following me. And then when I avoided that tire, I realized that if Dana had been right behind me in that little car, she would have flipped. She could have been killed or seriously injured. And when I realized what God in his mercy had done about an incident that I had not seen or foreseen, I'm driving this Volvo, and all I can do is just burst out in praise that he has protected my wife and protected me from a lifetime of heartache. This is David. He is exulting because he can see how God's mercy has continually protected. I'm not saying that he's doing this because he's okay. I'm saying that his heart has already been softened because I'm convinced when we get to heaven and we ask him what happened, he put two and two together. He said, I could have been in that battle. And he is so filled with gratitude to God for having prevented him from going, that his heart is open to the very tenderness of God himself who says, I do not take pleasure in anyone's death. You know, there is a phenomenon uh, of funerals. And that is, I have never been to the funeral of a bad person. I don't know, have you? Never been to a funeral of a bad person. At a funeral, generally only good things are said about the deceased. And sometimes it's possible to wonder, are they talking about that person in the casket? But death puts things in proper perspective. Death is the great equalizer. Um, I love this quote from John Donne. Any man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind and therefore never sin to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Whenever I go to a funeral, I come away closer to God. My heart is more tender than when I entered the funeral home because I realize how dependent I am on God's mercy. How one day I am going to stand before God and how this day and every day I need to plead to God to be merciful to me. And in that light, David is at this funeral and that recognition makes him extremely tenderhearted towards Saul above anything else. Funerals cause us to ponder the infinite. My wife's favorite book in the Bible is Ecclesiastes. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, there's this great passage. It says, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. 
I've never been to a funeral where I did not leave wanting to be closer to my wife, closer to my children, and closer to God. Never been to a funeral where I did not say, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. When we see death, it should make us aware of how dependent we are on God's mercy every day. Here's a principle to take with you. Our awareness of God's mercy in our own lives softens our heart toward our enemies. Our awareness of God's mercy in our own lives softens our hearts toward our enemies. How have you seen God's mercy work in your life? Well, that leads to my last point here. And the other two have kind of built up to this one. And that's God's sovereignty leads to forgiveness. At this point in David's life, he sees God's sovereign hand all over him. Remember, it was God who prepared him to fight Goliath when he was a shepherd boy. God sent him a bear and enabled David to be victorious. Then God sent a lion to attack the sheep, and God caused David to be victorious. And on the strength of these experiences and others, he trusted God more than he feared Goliath. It was God who appointed him king, a man so unlikely a choice that not even his own family members thought the choice made any sense. It was God who protected him from Saul for 15 years as he fled and hid in the deserts of the Negev. It was God who put Saul in his hands in the cave. It was God who put Saul in his hands in the middle of the Israelite camp. A friend uh, last week sent me a little story. God came to a, a man and he said, and pointed to a huge rock, said, see that rock? He said, I want you to go push against that rock. Every day, you must push against that rock. You must push, when the sun comes up, until the sun goes down, you push against that rock. And he did that. And he did it when it was cold, he did it when it was hot, he did it when the weather was good. His neighbors looked at him and laughed. Satan came and said, this is such a stupid thing, you're such a failure, you have not moved that rock one inch, and you've been pushing it for 15 years. And the neighbors come around and they say, come look at this idiot push against this rock. And then one day, uh, at the end of his life, he goes before God and he says, I've been a failure. You've called me to push against this rock all my life, and I've not moved it an inch. And God said, I, I didn't tell you to move the rock. I told you to push against the rock. And in the process of pushing against the rock, your whole body has become strong. Look at your legs. Look at your arms. You've learned perseverance. You've learned persistence. You're a much stronger man than you were before you started pushing against the rock. God says, I can move the rock. I don't need you to move the rock. All I wanted you to do was push against it. And for nearly 15 years, God told David to push against the rock. And David could now look on the 15 years of flight 
and see God's sovereign hand and protection while he was a fugitive from his own country. God had taught him that God is faithful. God had given him a band of very faithful, brained, brave, hardened, trained soldiers who had become the core of his army from, what, from which some of the 33 mighty men would be chosen. God had taught him how to lead fighting men in a godly way. God had made him strong physically and spiritually. And now God delivered the kingdom into his hand without having to fight Jonathan and Saul to get it. So David could look back at his life with proper perspective. What he saw was not Saul's murderous madness or the years of living in caves and being constantly on the run. No, when David surveyed his life, he saw God's loving and sovereign hand guiding the affairs of his life day in and day out. When he despaired and fled to Philistia, God was with him. When he seemed destined to go into battle against Jonathan and and, uh, Saul, it was God who prevented him from having to go into that battle. One reason David could forgive Saul now and that his forgiveness was deep and genuine was his realization that Saul's efforts could not and did not hinder God's purpose in David's life. He realized that God used Saul's disobedience to make Saul the kind of king that David could describe him as, a man after my own heart. God said to David, push against the rock. David was free to love Saul and honestly grieve his death because he knew God had sovereignly preserved David's life and sovereignly placed him on the throne of Israel. One way you and I can shape our eternity is to respond to our enemies in a way that pleases God. Thus, uh, an enemy cannot harm our destiny and our eternity. An enemy can only give us an opportunity to enrich our eternity. You understand? An enemy can only give us the opportunity to enrich um, enrich our eternity because God says to us, you push against the rock, and when I want it moved, I'll move it. You just push. So here's the principle. Something to take away, something to think about. Knowledge that God is in control of our lives lives, gives us a freedom to love even our enemies. Yes, they can hurt us, but they cannot thwart God's great purpose for our life. He will even use their hurts to our benefit because he is sovereign. How? Because he's sovereign and bends the arc of the universe to accomplish every great purpose he has for us in our lives. That working knowledge that no one can take from us anything of of eternal value, nor hinder God's purpose in our lives, serves as a shield against life's resentments. 
if we think that somebody can take away something of value from us, we grip it all the tighter. But it is not ours to grab. It is God's to give. I was about to drop on my knees and repent, but that's just the sound system, huh? Okay. Okay. That God is sovereign means he can be counted on, for nothing can be against him. He can be counted on for our salvation. He can be counted on to carry us through times of difficulty such that nothing touches us that is not in keeping with his desires for us. And he can be counted on to keep every single promise he makes to us. Now, Dana and I have a a puppy. He'll be seven months old on on, uh, Monday. I don't, I look at my dog and I'm, I'm marveled at how dumb he can be. <laughs> if you had a, if you have a pup, they will eat, puppies are disgusting eaters. <laughs> Last night, he ate his leather leech. <laughs> Listen to me. Last night, he ate his leather leash. Five o'clock this morning, he threw up his leather leash. <laughs> His name is Boone, like Daniel Boone, and he loves to go to the beach, but um, he loved the beach, but didn't know that the beach existed until I took him. He doesn't know how to get to the beach, and so must depend on me to take him. And when he sits in the back of that Volvo, sometimes he sleeps, and sometimes he's a whirling dervish back there, and I have to say, Boone, sit. I may have to pull off the road once or twice so that he can do things that he should do on the road and not in my car. But the bottom line is I'm taking him to the beach because I love this dog. His going to the beach depends on me, not on him. How are you trusting God or not trusting God in your life today? Do you need to repent because someone has hurt you so badly or may even be hurting you right now and you have concluded that God does not love you? Perhaps you have an insensitive parent or friend or mate. Perhaps you have been the victim of some terrible abuse. And perhaps someone at work is deliberately using deceit to harm you. If you have an enemy in your life today, let me give you a suggestion. Try this, and I'm serious about this. Write out a list of all the ways you can think of that God might bring out good from this trial in your life. Write out a list of all the ways you can think of that God might bring good out of this trial in your life. Now, let me close with uh, an attention to Jesus Christ who makes all of this possible. Uh, 
Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. Take out the word Jerusalem and put in your own name. Oh, Bill, Bill, how often I have longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. We see in Jesus God's justice and his mercy. They come together in his person. Because I started out saying that every sin must be punished. No sinner escapes unless Jesus Christ bears your sins on the cross. The sins don't escape what the sinner does because God's justice is such that even as you and I have said we want these wrongs righted God says I will do so but I must the wages of sin is death I must kill the sin and kill the sinner and Jesus steps forward and says father I am not asking you not to kill the sin because you are a holy God But Bill McCurin is down there, and you know what a horrible sinner he is, and he absolutely deserves your justice and your judgment. But what I ask you, Father, is to please let me die in his place. And the Father says, of course, my son. So that God's justice is satisfied to the utmost extent. Sin is punished to the utmost extent. And yet God's mercy flows over me like water. Just as the wrath of his judgment flowed over Jesus like a torrent. See, mercy is not getting what we deserve. And Jesus represents the mercy of God. And grace is getting what Jesus deserves. And Jesus has said that we are joint heirs with him as his gift. He is the gift giver. Nothing can thwart God's hold on us. And so how do we respond to our enemies? We respond knowing that we were the enemies of God. Jesus stepped in for the enemies of God to become himself one to be treated as God's own enemy that you and I could be called sons and daughters. And all God says is, I want you to treat your enemy in recognition that Jesus made you, converted you from being my enemy to my son. And we say, hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, so overcome by your constant provision of mercy in our lives, your loving and sovereign control over our lives that you have for us only good in mind and you will deliver it to such a degree that we will rejoice for an eternity all through Jesus Christ. Amen.